Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, August 30th episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen Arate. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter, either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. Now, in addition to poetsandmuses.com and our SoundCloud page, you can listen to the Poets and Muses podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. With us today is Nicole Tracy, with whom I will be discussing her poem, Three-Part Erasure of Catcalls, and my poem, Hemmed In. Before we do that, however, I'm going to go over some virtual poetry events taking place during the week of August 31st. On Monday, August 31st, from 4 p.m. Eastern Time, Nuijinan TV will be hosting the 17th of its 20-episode, The Nuijinan Wind Carriers Challenge, in which anyone can participate, but only indigenous youth between 8 and 25 are eligible for the prices, which includes a grand prize of a MacBook Pro. You can find out more information by going to facebook.com forward slash events four slash six four four five four seven three zero nine four five eight six eight zero. Again that's Facebook.com forward slash events four slash six four four five four seven three zero nine four five eight six eight zero. From five thirty to seven PM Arizona time the Virginia G. Piper Center for Creative Writing will be hosting the second of its two media misrepresentation workshop with our past poet guest, Sean Avery. You can find out more information about that by going to piper.asu.edu forward slash classes. Again, that's piper.asu.edu forward slash classes. From 8 p.m. Central Time, Frizzy Productions will be hosting its Poets Playground open mic via Instagram live at poets underscore playground underscore. Again, that's poets underscore playground underscore. On Tuesday, September 1st, from 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, Urban Word NYC will be hosting its first draft open mic for those between the ages of 13 and 23. This is a virtual writing workshop and open mic series facilitated by Roya Marsh. You can find out more information and register at urbanwordnyc.org forward slash first draft. Again, that's urbanwordnyc.org forward slash first draft. From 5 to 5.30 p.m. Arizona time, Arizona Masters of Poetry will be hosting its Speak Poet via Instagram Live at Arizona Masters of Poetry. Again, that's at Arizona Masters of Poetry. On Wednesday, September 2nd, from 8.30 p.m. Beirut time, Sidewalk Beirut will be hosting its online open mic. You can find out more information by going to facebook.com forward slash Sidewalk Beirut. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash Sidewalk Beirut. Beirut is spelled B-E-I-R-U-T. The sign-up to participate starts at 8.15 p.m. on the night of. From 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time, Nuijinan TV will be hosting its Nuijinan's Got Talent, which showcases indigenous youth between 13 and 25. You can find out more information and RSVP on Instagram at Nuijinan TV. That's N-W-E-J-I-N-A-N-T-V. Again, that's N-W-E-J-I-N-A-N-T-V. From 8 p.m. Eastern Time, a poet named Superman will be hosting his release therapy open mic via Instagram Live at a poet named Superman. Again, that's at a poet named Superman. From 8 p.m. Pacific Time, Berkeley Poetry Slam will be hosting its Workshop and Slam, this week featuring Gigi Bella. You can find out more information by going to facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 350-115-632-673-4. 
427. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 350-115-632-673-427. On Thursday, September 3rd, from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time, the Tiny Cupboard will be hosting its virtual poetry night. And you can find out more information and sign up at thetinycupboard.com forward slash events. Again, that's thetinycupboard.com forward slash events. From 7 to 8 p.m. Arizona time, Phonetic Spit will be hosting its weekly open mic via Instagram Live at Phonetic Spit. That's P-H-O-N-E-T-I-C-S-P-I-T. Again, that's P-H-O-N-E-T-I-C-S-P-I-T. On Friday, September 4th, from 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time, Marquise 10,000 Burton will be hosting his live poetry freestyling via Instagram Live at 10,000 Poetry. Again, that's at 10,000 Poetry, with 10,000 spelled out. On Saturday, September 5th, from 5 to 5.30 p.m. Arizona Time, Arizona Masters of Poetry will be hosting its Speak Poet Saturday via Instagram Live at Arizona Masters of Poetry. From 6 to 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time, New Women's Space will be hosting its Open Mic Night. You can find out more information and register at newwomenspace.com forward slash events. Again, that's newwomenspace.com forward slash events. From 5 to 7 p.m. British Summertime, Poetry LGBT will be hosting their open mic. And you can find out more information and register at facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 318-422-452-494-843. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 318 318- Four two two four five two four nine four eight four three. From six p.m. Paris time, Paris Lit Up will be hosting its monthly writers workshop. You can find out more information and sign up at parislitup.com forward slash the hyphen writers hyphen workshop. Again, that's parislitup.com forward slash the hyphen writers hyphen workshop. From 2 p.m. Eastern Time, Pure Ink Poetry with our past poet guest Brandon Williamson will be hosting his video slam. You can find out more information and sign up at pureinkpoetry.com. Again, that's pureinkpoetry.com. And now let us welcome our poet guest of the week, Nicole Tracy. Hi, Nicole. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Of course. So you brought with you your poem, Three Parts Erasure of Catcalls. Before we get into that, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. My name is Nicole Tracy. I am a big performer. Um, I actually did not grow up doing poetry and writing. I was actually an Irish dancer for oh. most of my life. Wow. And I went to an open mic on a one-off, kind of on a board Saturday night. Mm-hmm. And I met some really amazing artists that night. And I was like, this is so cool. Y'all are so supportive and wonderful. What other events do you do? I want to keep coming back. <laughs> and it was about a year and a half ago now. And I've been doing open mics to slam poetry ever since. Wow. And wow. I am a cat mom. <laughs> oh, you're a cat mom. Aww. I'm going to have to request some cat photos later because it's basically sustaining me throughout this, (laughs) like, (laughs) physical distancing. (laughs) Sounds good. She is a very photogenic cat. Not always the nicest, but very cute. (laughs) Aww. They're just like people, you know. You kind of run into all kinds of different felinalities. I've had some really fortunate good cat experiences i i've also run into ones who are very very uh, aloof and some are very scared depending on their past experiences pretty much like a human being yeah 
just curious, although it has nothing to do with poetry so much, how the heck did you get into Irish dancing? I'm Irish on my mom's side, um, and I do a cultural project in like first or second grade, mm-hmm. and there's a huge Irish festival in LA, where I'm originally from. Mm-hmm. So we went to that, and my mother was trying to figure out something to put me in after school, mm-hmm. um, and I had tried soccer, and I was like, no, I'm bored because I'm the goalie because I'm good at catching the like balls from flying into the net, and I don't get to like do anything with that. Right. <laughs> um, and then, of course, at an Irish festival, there's Irish dancers. And I was like, oh, that looks so cool. I want to try it. And so my mother signed me up for it, thinking I would do it for six months or a year. And I did it for 11. Wow. Wow. That's impressive. It looks very taxing on the body. Oh, yeah. It definitely can be if you're doing it more for competitions and shows and not just for fun and good exercise. Right, right. Yeah. Going back to poetry now, when did you start writing poetry? I definitely wrote a little bit when I was younger. Uh, my bachelor's degree is actually in English, so I do have somewhat of a writing background. Okay. Uh, but that for me was more of, I like that I can read a book and get something completely different out of it than you can, and both of our views on what we got out of this book are still valid. Mm-hmm. But writing poetry, so I've gone to this one open mic, the Rich Oak open mic in the Bay Area, and... It was like a $5 cover fee to get in, and I was kind of bored and didn't really have anything going on that day, and I found it on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, this looks like it's close by cool. And I'm like, oh, if I love it, great. I now have something I can continue to go to. If not, well, at least I spent my money on local art. Right. And one of the organizers sat down next to me before the show and was like, you're new. I've never seen you here before. Are you a writer? <laughs> And like most early writers, I was like, well, I mean, I write, but kind of not really. (laughs) And then she had asked me, well, have you signed up to read tonight? And I was like, I I wasn't planning on it. I don't know how I feel about this. She was like, well, you should read. She was like, do something, read. read." It's a a small audience. We're super supportive here. And I was like, okay, fine. I guess I'll (laughs) read. And have gone to those events ever since. Um, now they're virtual because of the pandemic, but right. they're still fun to go to. Right, right. And so this experience you just described, that was your first one a year and a half ago, right? Yep. Okay, wow, wow. Yeah, it's really nice to go to the open mics, and I actually only started going not too long ago, not too long before I started this podcast, in fact. It makes such a difference to be able to walk into a place where you feel welcomed and accepted and and with people who are willing to listen to your story. Yeah, absolutely. So if you don't mind reading for us your poem, then we can we can start talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. A three-part erasure of catcalls. One, a man shouts, damn girl, I want you on a plate. And I don't stop walking to tell him, for fuck's sake, you are not the first person to holler at me, but you are by far the most annoying. But the humorous part of me wonders, what type of plate would I be? I wish I could be a fun plate, but I am probably a fragile decorative plate you get as a wedding gift, just to display in a cabinet, because like these plates, I'm only good for looking at, kept away because I am too fragile. But at least that means I... I'm a fancy meal. One with two small portion sizes that can't satisfy his hunger. So he finds some other girl to plate two. Blames us for his hunger. Blames us for the bite marks and serrated knife marks he left behind. Blames us for not being enough for him. A man shouts, damn girl, I want you on a plate. And I think about the last boy that dropped me and I shattered. How I was still nothing more than meat to be consumed. How I could never satisfy his hunger either. It became my fault I wasn't appetizing enough to him anymore. But he doesn't realize he was never appetizing to me in the first place. It was only about his hunger because men don't like when their meals talk back. A man shouts, damn girl, I want you on a plate. Because I'm wearing shorts in 90 degree heat. Because all summer I have to choose between cat calls and heat stroke. Because if I get heat stroke, he has an excuse to put his hands on me. He has an excuse to say, I didn't say no. A man shouts, damn girl, I want you on a plate. And it's probably a disposable plate. Use once, throw away, just like what he thinks of me. Two, a man shouts, damn girl, I want you on a plate. 
fragile decorative plate because I'm only good for looking at too fragile, a fancy male that can't satisfy his hunger, other girls to plate, blamed for his hunger, blamed for not being enough. A man shouts, damn girl, I think I was nothing more than meat. I could never satisfy his hunger. It was only about his hunger because men don't like when their meals talk back. A man shouts, damn girl, because I'm wearing shorts, because I have to choose cat calls or heat stroke. A man shouts, damn girl, I want you disposable. Use what's throw away. Three, a man shouts, girl, I want you fragile, decorative, good for looking at. A meal can't satisfy his hunger. I'm blamed for not being enough. A man shouts, girl, you're nothing more than meat. Never satisfied. Don't talk back. A man shouts, girl, cat calls, disposable. Thank you. Oof. This is quite a poem to both read and also to listen to. Is this one of the poems that you've performed before? or? Yes, it is. So kind of a fun fact about this poem, actually. It was originally just part one. Um, mm-hmm. and I had written that in a writing workshop. Mm-hmm. Then maybe three or four months later, there was another writing workshop kind of focused around erasure poems. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, what poems do I have that might make good erasures? And one of the facilitators was like, well, if you don't know what poems would make good erasures, what poems do you have that are either long or that have repeating phrases? So I was like, oh, duh, of course it's this poem. Mm. Cool. Wow. And when did you write this poem? I wrote this last summer, so it's about a year old now. Okay. Okay. The content of the poem seems like they are reflective of maybe some personal experiences, so I don't know if this was inspired by anything that actually happened to you. Yeah, I was actually called by a man that he wanted me on a plate. I was walking back from, like, my lunch break at work mm-hmm. um, in, like, June, July type of thing, so very hot. Mm-hmm. Dressed appropriate for the weather because, right. you know, it's hot, it's sunny, I'm going to wear shorts, I'm going to be comfortable. Right. I had my headphones in, and I, like, vaguely hear this guy talking to someone else sitting next to him. He's like, and I want that girl on a plate, and I want that girl on a plate. And over my music, I hear, damn, and I want that girl on a plate. And I just kind of look at him. I just give him this death glare and then just keep walking. So I was like, in my head, I was like, I know anything I say to you isn't going to matter. So it's just easier to ignore you. <laughs> yeah. And, and how long after that did you write this poem? I wrote it that week, actually. Okay. Uh, the workshop prompt that this was originally based off of was kind of like, if you were to be a food, what type of food would you be? Mm-hmm. And my first kind of thought back to that prompt was, well, I wouldn't get to pick what kind of food I am. I would just automatically be me. Right. It's kind of ironic, right? Because catcalls reduces us to whatever the heck whoever's making those catcalls want us to be. And in some ways, your poem reduces the catcall. So it erases them in the same kind of reductionist way that a catcall erases the personhood of the target. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's what I was originally going for in the erasure, too, of like, oh, well, you think you can reduce me down? Well, I can do the same thing to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm curious, when you gave him the death stare, that he was there any reaction or he would just, what? <laughs> I mean, I think it was just kind of like, oh, like, of course, some girl's going to be upset that I'm talking at her in public. And I'm like, I really also wanted to then just be like, so then why do you do it? If you know this is inappropriate, why do you do it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think anyone reading this poem will intuit the fact that you actually have many, many things to say to him, that you wanted to say many things to him. But uh, as you said, and as you wrote in the poem as well, it might not have matter. It might have actually fed into whatever attention he was trying to get. Yeah. And you talked a little bit about that because the prompt of what kind of food would you be. But how come you decided to choose this fancy meal, the not enough, a decorative plate and, and you know, that vein? Well, I think I kind of went off of his comment of, I want you on a plate. And so immediately, because again, you can come back at things defensively or just confuse the hell out of people. (laughs) 
So I think that's kind of what I was going for. Well, what size of fight would I be? Mm-hmm. Um, and then just like, wait, you're not screaming at me for objectifying you? Uh, type of thing. And then so I kind of answered my own question of, uh, you know, if you're going to put someone on this like platter, this really nice place, it's going to be something fancy. Mm-hmm. You know, I personally buy the like nice, affordable places from Target. They do me just fine. They're pretty sturdy. Mm-hmm. I would not personally go out and buy very expensive plates, but I know a lot of people who get them as wedding gifts. And then it's kind of like, we have these nice plates we got as a wedding gift, but we don't use because they're fancy and breakable. Mm-hmm. I've never thought so much about the type of plate I use until I had written this poem. Right. <laughs> Did you do research into, into the writing of this poem? I didn't do a ton of research. So my, my great-grandmother is still alive, actually, and I'm really lucky to have her in my life. Wow. Yeah. She had been married to my great-grandfather for 75 years before he had passed away. Um, and so they still had their fancy place that they got as their wedding gift. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was just kind of like, well, you know, do you ever really use these? And she's like, no, they're really just decoration now with a good memory. And I was just like, wow. <laughs> That's wild. That's uh, really amazing. I really enjoyed the metaphor and the train of thought or the stream of consciousness that you kind of go down to talk about the aspect of being one of those so-called fancy meals where you don't feel satisfied using the metaphor of his hunger. I was wondering some of the thought processes that led you to use some of these particular metaphors. So I kind of thought about it as like word mapping or kind of where you have like one word in the center and you're like, what kind of associates with that word? Mm Mm-hmm. Like, okay, you have a plate. Obviously, something has to go on the plate. Well, maybe what type of meal is that? Mm-hmm. And my aunt, when I was younger, was really big on taking me out to, like, fancy places to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, to make me feel like a grown-up. Mm-hmm. I was very proud from a very young age to know which fork was the salad for. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I just kind of grab the first clean fork. <laughs> um, but I always remember just thinking, just there's never a kid's menu in these really fancy restaurants. Mm. And of course, the like meals are relatively small because they're made with higher quality ingredients. They're more expensive. Everything else, mm-hmm. and so it's one of those of like, oh, okay, can I get two entrees because I'm hungry, and they are they're like kid sized entrees for a grown up size, a grown up catered meal. <laughs> wow, that's amazing! It's always wonderful to see how a poem draws on the poet's experiences I mean, as far back as childhood, even though this happened recently. Also, the, the writing methods that different people use. Did you specifically sit down and actually do the word map- mapping process, or was it just something that you did in your head? It was a little bit of both. It was mostly in my head, but then when I was like, ooh, that's a really good idea, I want to remember that I wrote it down. Right. So I knew from the beginning I wanted this poem to repeat the phrase, damn girl, I want you on a plate. Mm-hmm. So in my note, it kind of devolved from the full line of a man shouts, damn girl, I want you on a plate, to a man shouts, plate. Because mm-hmm. I was like, I know what this is going to refer to. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think part of being catcalled or part of... Uh, unfortunately, having multiple experiences of being catcalled is that sometimes you already understand exactly the meaning behind the catcalls, even if they are done in a, a somewhat polite fashion. The people who tell you to smile, for instance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's also interesting to me to see the stanza where you go into the fact that you were wearing shorts and it's 90 degree heat, so you were dressed appropriately for the weather. To go into this heat stroke idea, again, having the feeling of not having agency. I was wondering what, what made you decide to put that turn in there. Kind of talking back to this idea of, well, what were you wearing? Mm-hmm. Uh, also, at the time, I was doing community organizing work, so I was working outdoors a lot. When we're working with trainees, especially, we, we always say, dress appropriate for the weather. Yes, that is okay with it being short. Mm-hmm. But then also this kind of double standard of the assumption that shorts aren't professional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So definitely one of those of like, oh, well, you're wearing shorts. I don't know if I actually trust that you're doing good community work. And I was like, I'm sorry. Do you see how hot it is? (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, there's definitely that. I think our culture, the way... you know, our U.S. culture has developed, uh, even though there's no monolithic culture, but it's still that, you know, professional means that you wear some kind of uniform, even if that uniform is uh, has some leeway in terms of maybe color and stuff, but you have to, you know, wear a suit. That's, that's what connotes this idea of professionalism, even if that means you might suffer actual physical ailments from it. Can you go into the next line where you were talking about getting the heat stroke? It says, because if I get heat stroke, he has an excuse to put his hands on me. He has an excuse to say that I didn't say no. Yeah, I was also a Girl Scout, so this is a little bit of like my random Girl Scout knowledge as well. When someone is heat stroke, one of the first things you want to do is work to cool them down slowly. Mm-hmm. So if they're wearing a jacket, take off their jacket, take off their shoes, things like that, and like splash a little bit of cold water on the back of their neck. Mm. And obviously, like, if I was passed out from heat stroke, I personally would want someone to make sure that I am safe and cared for. Mm-hmm. But I also know that there are people that would take advantage of a passed out from a girl. Right, right, yeah. I thought it was interesting, especially now that I know that you're from California, the obvious case that comes in mind is Brock Turner, the Stanford swimmer. Uh, I think it's Ch- Chelsea I, is her name? Chanel. Chanel. And and that's what the image that brought to my mind those particular two lines. And I don't know if that's something that was in the back of your mind as well. It probably was in the back of my mind. I was an RA in college, so I was responsible for obviously making sure people are safe and then obviously giving the standard warnings of drinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was really grateful that I was on a college campus. I graduated in 2018, so a lot of things changed in 2016 after Brock Turner's case. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was really grateful that after that, my college changed their policies a lot. And we're like, okay, great. If you were the victim of any crime when you were drunk, it's not your fault. Mm-hmm. And I was really grateful to see that in their policies as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, like, we were still telling girls, especially of like, Hold on to your drink. Make sure no one touches your drink except for you. Make sure you're the only one that pours your drink. Make sure you know at all times where your specific cup is. And mm-hmm. if you don't remember where it is, get a new one. Mm-hmm. And just all of these things that you're still hearing despite, in theory, making progress towards being better for people. Right, right. I think there is something to be said about being aware of your surroundings at the same time. I think one of the biggest complaints that activists have is that, okay, you're telling women one side of the equation to be doing this, to be doing all of these things, to be vigilant and basically never have fun, never let your guard down, never <laughs> let your hair down, you know, kind of, you know, never feel relaxed, really. Because, you know, why are we going to parties, right? But then on the other hand, they never, they don't, there's not enough, at least, but, you know, you tell me as well, since you've been on campus recently, what are they doing in terms of telling the men or raising uh, male-identifying people, or even just uh, people in general, how to respect boundaries, how to approach and negotiate interpersonal relationships and sexual relationships also? Yeah, I think it was definitely, at least on my college, taken as a larger approach of, um, it's everyone's responsibility to stop this from happening. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. I can control my own actions, but I cannot control someone else's actions if they already have an intent to do something. Right. So one thing that I've seen a few colleges do as well is called bystander intervention training. Mm-hmm. It's basically kind of the like stereotypical scenario is you're at a party with your friends and you see one of your friends start to go upstairs with someone she looks drunk what do you do mm-hmm. um, and how to approach that scenario and really be able to say like, no, she's going home with me mm-hmm. and being able to do that for your friends and kind of this idea of like, you would want someone to do that for you. So you should do that for someone else. Right. Is that standard college training now? 
I don't know if that's at every college. My college definitely changed a lot of things in 2015 and 2016. Mm-hmm. So it's really great to see that focus as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know there's a lot of organizations as well that are willing to partner with college campuses to host these trainings and make sure that as something the larger college population sees, not just student leadership and college employees. Right, right. It sounds like it's still done on a volunteer basis, not mandatory training. So my college specifically wanted to make sure that everyone got the bystander intervention training. Mm. So they had facilitators that were usually RAs. They had some non-RA students volunteers as well. Mm -hmm. And they made it a requirement basically for freshman orientation, which was kind of cool to see. Great. And if you didn't go to that, you actually couldn't register for classes the next semester. So my college had one during freshman orientation for the general freshman population. Mm -hmm. And you had to swipe your ID into this event so they did keep track of who was going. Um, And then they had two different ones, one week and two weeks before freshman registration, to basically be like, oh, you didn't go to this? Well, you have to to register. (laughs) Yeah. And I imagine the class uh, registration process is still as competitive as before so oh yeah (laughs) yeah I mean one thing I was really grateful for is if it was a requirement for your major even if it was full you had to be let into that class Uh, so there were a lot of students emailing professors going I'm a blank major I need to take this class to fulfill this requirement it's full please help wow it's really interesting to see, you know, just get a refresher, at least from your university. I don't, I don't know if you want to tell us which one it is. I went to Canisius College in Buffalo. That's a school. Okay, okay. This was actually in New York. I thought it was uh, in California because, you know, you were just there. So. <laughs> no, I wanted a college that had snow. My mm-hmm. birthday's in February, and I, I never got snow on my birthday until I went to college. So that was kind of my... Number two priority with college, number one being the financial aid package I got. Right, right, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Wow, that's that's pretty great that, you know, especially being a religious educational institution to, to see that. I don't think people realize or maybe there are impressions of religious institution run educational facilities that um, <laughs> given what's going on during COVID, you know, that, that maybe it's not it's less responsible in certain ways. So it's, right. it's great to see that. So I guess you've seen snow and Buffalo, I think you get to see a lot of snow. Oh, yeah. My first year uh, living in Buffalo, it snowed from Halloween until the first week of May. <laughs> oh, wow. So, yes, um, obviously on and off, uh, but that was kind of like when the first snowfall happened to when the last snowfall happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was definitely one of the, like, the first few times it was like, oh my goodness, this is so cool. I love the snow, blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, six weeks into walking through two and a half feet of snow to get to class, I was like, all right, I can put this on pause for the rest of the year. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you you do get sick of it after a while, even though it's always gorgeous to see, especially fresh snow. If you're in an area that has more plant life, it's just gorgeous. At the same time, when you have to drudge through it, you know, especially for class or something, it's just not fun. So basically, you went back to living in California after after your university in, in New York and snow life. Yeah, I was involved in a lot of different community organizing aspects in college. Mm-hmm. Um, my focus was kind of around environmental justice, okay. um, and I really liked that because it's so intersectional to different forms of justice. Mm-hmm. And I liked that, you know, I could talk to like an upper class suburbanite and basically be like, hey, yeah, you know, we need to clean up the Great Lakes because this is a huge issue. We need to protect the life that's in there, blah, 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 blah. Don't you like having picnics on the lake? Mm-hmm. And I could talk to communities that were using one of the Great Lakes to support their family and feed their family. And be like, you know, this is a huge issue, too. We need to make this equitable to people. 
Mm-hmm. And everyone was like, yes, of course, you need to clean the lake. And so it was a really great way to get more people to care about issues. Mm-hmm. And so as I was wrapping up my senior year, I was kind of like, okay, well, what's an area of the U.S. that is really known for their activism and doing all this great work? Mm-hmm. My first mistake was just going to Google and typing in social justice jobs. <laughs> results. Um, a lot of them were around criminal justice which is not quite what I wanted, but mm-hmm. um, so I was like, okay, let's try narrowing this down by area. And I knew I didn't really want to live in New York City. It's just very expensive, yeah. um, to say the least. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, well, what are other places? And I was like, oh, San Francisco, of course. Mm-hmm. And so I started looking, and there were a lot of different ways to get involved with different social issues in San Francisco, and I was like, Okay, so I started applying to them, obviously, and everyone thought I was crazy for kind of just wanting to, like, up and move to do great things in a city that does, that focuses and centers itself around equity work. Mm-hmm. And I was there for about two years, and I kind of realized San Francisco doesn't need another person doing this work. There's already great people out here doing it. Mm-hmm. I want to go to areas where this isn't being done and where this isn't the center of attention and they need one more person doing this work. Right, right. Cool. And so I guess you are in a new job now. In... Yes, I am. I'm actually doing voter outreach for Western Pennsylvania. Okay. Uh, I'm, do- I'm doing it from home, but Pennsylvania is a huge swing state. Right. So, yeah. Everyone, get out and vote. November 3rd is election day. And if you get a mail-in ballot, send that in. Yeah, yeah. It's really, <laughs> really important, both the local and the and the national elections. Definitely. I thought you were in New York now, but are you planning to move to Pennsylvania? Or this is something that you will end up doing remotely anyway? I'm doing it remotely, so I am able to do it from New York, which is nice. And I asked in my interview, like, okay, let's say September 1st rolls around and coronavirus up and leaves and no one's ever heard of it anymore. <laughs> Will I be expected to go in in person? And they're like, no, this is fully remote for election day. And I was like, perfect. I get to do this in the comfort of my own home. <laughs> wow. That's really cool. I'm really glad to hear that. It's wonderful to have that option. And I think one of the things that people or companies and and also just individuals in general are able to see is that we can work from home and still get a lot done. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So one of the reasons I picked my poem is because obviously it talks about the same subject, but approaching it from a somewhat different different perspective. So I'm going to read that and then we can talk about it. It's called Hemmed In. The whistle is loud and clear, but how can I understand when I'm not a bird, nor an ornithological linguist? Still, he wanted a mind reading, certain that I've heard the tune before and familiar with its cipher. Oh, my man, if I had that mind-bending skill, I would have walked down another street in pursuit of safety in numbers. Amazing. (laughs) Thank you. Appreciate that. I guess kind of my first question, bouncing off yours, is is this inspired by a specific encounter or a series of them? It's actually not off of any... I can't. I was trying to think of whether or not this is... I've heard whistles before. I imagine I must have... I mean, I I, I used to live in New York, so, you know, any city-dwelling kind of... It's almost inescapable in some ways, unfortunately. So I must have heard something before, and I've definitely heard catcalls before as well, but this particular poem is not based off of one particular incident. Okay. I also really like your comparison to a bird. Tell me a little bit more about that. Why a bird? Because the cackle in this poem that's being depicted, one is that it's a whistle. Again, it's sort of like your poem, it depersonalizes uh, the target of the cackle. And in this case, it made me think of like, I'm not even human. I'm not even worthy of human words, human language. It's just a whistle, which, you know, sounds like something that you do to animals or birds. And also bird is something that in England, the British tends to call women birds. I didn't know that. Yeah. Why birds? Yeah. 
I don't know where it comes from, but it, it's a reference to girls, basically. It's just like that bird, you know, like that bird or something along those lines. So I've heard it used before. So that's another reason I kind of went down that route. You know, I really like the closing line of, uh, if I had that mindset you kill, I would have walked on another person who's safety in numbers. Mm-hmm. Just this kind of idea of like all these situations, really, if we had known about them, we would have done something completely different. And still that reinforced idea that it's always on us to avoid danger and not those dangerous things to be dangerous. Yeah, yeah, I think that's one of the things, right? I mean, to me, I always think of what can I do to better my life, my situation, even though I want the world to be more equitable, even though I obviously would prefer that there was training in terms of just raising people in general to respect other people's boundaries, to have a better choice in terms of like a healthier interaction, interpersonal interactions, and especially negotiating our hormones and our desire and and our desire to procreate and also to just enjoy the act of sex, right? Um, how can we how can we do that that's most beneficial to most people? At the same time, I also know that uh, in terms of controlling behavior, the only person whose behavior I, I can control really is my behavior. So from from that point of view, we do want to, especially when something horrible happens to us, we want, we wish we had the ability to have foreseen. We we wish we had, uh, you know, foresight. We wish we had mind reading skills. All of these impossible things that we wish we had, and in a way, it's in keeping with the the uh, victim blaming game, as you mentioned before, because we don't have that. How can the greater society keep saying, well, if you didn't do this, if you didn't do that, all of these, (laughs) if then, you know, as if somehow they knew perfectly that if you had just done this, then none of these other things would have happened. Rather than to say, well, the perpetrator is the one who's controlling or who has the opportunity to control his or their behavior. Why don't we ever ask them that question? Why didn't you not do anything? What is it behind your reason for catcalling someone? What is it that made you decide that you can just put your hands all over somebody who's passed out for whatever reason? So definitely these considerations are always something that unfortunately we as women have to keep in mind more than men, even though men are also victims of assault. Yeah. I also think your poem as well as mine just hit on this idea of not doing anything as a way to fight back against this person doing something, mm. which I think is very interesting because you always assume, of, oh, well, if you're fighting back against something, you're taking direct action against that thing you're fighting or for something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in both of these, we're just kind of Letting it happen and ignoring it or taking out our feelings in another way. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we are writing what we would like to have said to the person, imagining in our writing that there is somebody who is willing or that person is willing to actually listen. The fact is, a lot of women, and again, this becomes part of the victim blaming, is that why didn't you do anything, you know? Again, as if if we had done something, everything would have become fine. The other person who (laughs) already disrespected our boundaries would have somehow found kind of, uh, I don't know, his civility or something, (laughs) if we just reminded them, (laughs) you know? Which, again, is kind of an unreasonable assumption of the part of people who are uh, victim-blaming. Because, again, uh, many many women or many victims of sexual violence do not do anything, partly because we don't know how somebody who's already decided to trample on our boundaries would react to us reacting. In a, in a overt manner. 
And also, people talk about this uh, fight or flight instinct, right? Uh, what most people do not understand is that fight or flight, even the name in itself or this phrasing is actually got it backwards. All animals, their tendency is not to fight. Their first instinct is to flight. To have that misunderstanding and to apply that complete misunderstanding of both human behavior as part of the larger animal world is <laughs> to, again, require the victim to become this extra superhuman in some ways. Right. I also think it's always interesting to, just because I, I hate to say it like this, but I feel like every woman-identifying person has an encounter like this. Uh, and it's always just kind of this idea of either of like I'm not really a person, or it's very of like this idea of being an animal, either the person doing the action or the person that's on the receiving end of it. You know, I wouldn't necessarily think of a bird personally, just because you know this might also just be me not knowing a lot about birds, but I always picture birds as kind of like beautiful little creatures that are kind of more things related to taste leave a piece of but in this case it's like oh no it's a bird whistling at you and it's meant to not be a beautiful song that this bird is singing yeah yeah or somebody who's whistling to a bird who's trying to get somebody who's not of their species to kind of react because that's you know, if we were in nature and if we were, you know, we saw a beautiful bird, that's not like <laughs> flying away from us, which they usually do. You know, like like when you are calling your cat, for instance, you make a sound that you, even though it's not a human sound and, and it's not a cat sound, <laughs> you are still trying to call it forward in some way, right? <laughs> yeah. In yes. in the um, language, yeah, we, we mock our cat when she starts meowing very loudly. We meow back. <laughs> and again, it's sort of this interesting way of trying to relate, because it's not it's not really if we think about it, it's not the most rational thing to to be whether you're calling a cat or you're calling to a bird to get its attention to be making noises that you have no idea whether or not they under or how they would take it as a call. And similarly, the person who is catcalling by whistling or, or who's shouting, you know, girl, I want you on a plate, you know, the reason why we feel reduced is because they're not trying to relate to you in a language that you want to be related to. They are talking or they're trying to get your attention in the way that they're trying to get attention. Just as your poem pointed out, it's about him. He doesn't want his meal to talk back. This guy that you talked about that, that broke your heart, you know, your last uh, love interest. Uh, I forgot to ask you about that. Uh, so we'll, we'll get into that a little bit. And then generally going into relationships is like, how are we relating to each other? Are we relating to each other as people to people? Are we relating to each other as, oh, this person has something that I think I can get from her or him, whether or not they want to give that particular thing. So it's interesting to see people trying to get your attention and realizing, and I, I think the realization that cat calls is about the cat caller rather than about you, I think it's important to know, to understand. It doesn't make the experience any better, but I, I don't know. I don't know if it makes it a little bit more just, to me, having comprehension of the, of the issue always helps me a little bit. It doesn't <laughs> make the situation better. I still don't want to be at the end of a cat call, at the receiving end of a cat call. But um, still, it's it's interesting to have that understanding. Yeah, I also think it's interesting as well with cat calls. It's part of like just the goal is to get your attention and mm -hmm. not to. It's like oh, once once I got your attention, now I'm no longer interested. I just wanted to see if I could get your attention. 
Yeah, yeah. I think that's the thing. It's like you have to wonder about the person, like how sad that person's life must be that this is how they get off, basically. <laughs> and maybe it makes it... Um, Maybe what I was trying to say was to make them, humanizes them in, in a way to make me not want to physically hurt them <laughs> and more want to um, help them. Yeah, definitely. I, I think there's a really big importance of recognizing just no one is a perfect person, obviously. Uh, mm-hmm. And while there is no excuse for violent actions against a person, there's that need to understand the other person and where they're coming from. Maybe they didn't know any better as being able to sit down with them and say, no, this is wrong. I've given you your warning. Don't do it again. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, on the other hand, you also feel like, why is it on me? Why is it my responsibility, right? right? You know, like, this person is not my child. or <laughs> And... and usually is a grown-up doing this this thing yeah. and you're just like who raised you you know <laughs> but you know that that's just the thing the the world we live in is that people come from all kinds of backgrounds and and all kinds of experiences make them who they are and again just having some understanding of basic human psychology helps you to empathize in a way that you know it also helps us to formulate ways of combating this problem because then we can you know maybe not in that particular setting not maybe not in situ like right then and there but to formulate workshops that actually are effective yeah so you know as i said before uh, one of the things that I did notice about your poem, which we didn't get to talk previously, is the the idea of the stanza that where you talked about your former relationship. Again, I don't know if it's autobiographical or, or it's a conglomerate of personal experiences or one particular one. Yeah, uh, it's definitely a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Uh, I <laughs> I'll kind of break that stanza down into sections. Mm-hmm. There's the I think about the last boy that dropped me and I shattered. Mm-hmm. Just kind of people I've encountered in life, mm-hmm. um, romantically or platonically, that mm-hmm. at certain points are just kind of like I'm done with our friendship, but I'm just gonna kind of go to you. Mm-hmm. And there's no real of like, okay, well, why? If you had just said, hey, I'm not interested in anymore, I'm gonna go do my thing. I would not have necessarily been thrilled to be dumb, but I wouldn't have been as frustrated and as hurt. And then the second part, just kind of the idea of the consumption around it. I I am a sexual assault survivor, um, Mm -hmm. and I do want to name that because I know it's a huge issue for really everyone, Mm -hmm. um, but talking about it especially is really difficult for people, and I want to name that it's difficult and name that it's okay to want to talk about it and to share your experiences as well. Mm -hmm. And I think for me in this poem... It was a really great way for me to name this was about someone else's needs before my own. Mm-hmm. And that's what hurt me the most is that I wasn't taken into consideration at all. And I just had to sit there and be quiet about it. Right. I think, as you said, for sexual assault survivors, it is very important for us to talk about, to have a safe space to talk about it because. You know, one one of the other victim blaming things that people do is to, you know, nowadays because you know, and then people say, oh, it's so long ago they didn't talk about it. Then you know, why why are they bringing it up now? And people who say that seem to either have no understanding or f- fail to imagine the possibility that somebody who's felt like their boundary has been crossed, um, especially in a forceful way, is that we don't, we have incredibly uh, huge trust issues. And as much as we want to relate what happened to us, we also have a need to protect our wound, wounded selves. Yeah. You know, the, the, the equivalent will be like if you have a cut 
on your hand and you put a bandage on it, you don't go around and just like pull the bandage and show it to everybody. Be like, hey, here's my cut, you know, because you, right. you might get infected. You know, like I feel like when it comes to psychological pain, people have very little understanding of it and little empathy for it because they don't see it. So somehow they just, it's out of sight, out of mind kind of a thing. And the other thing, too, is, again, the psychological pain is one of those of, like, you know, running on the same analogy, oh, if I cut my finger open, if it's on a paper cut, just a, a lot of people know how painful a paper cut is. Right. Even if you haven't necessarily had a paper cut, maybe you placed your thumb open on a knife while you're cooking or cut your leg while shaving type of thing. Like, you still have some concept of what that pain feels like. Mm-hmm. Whereas with psychological pain, a lot of the times, like, unless you've been in this specific situation, you don't understand what it feels like. Yeah, yeah. And, and even for those people who have, right, there, there is, um, because of the Me Too movement and because it has brought up, you know, different degrees of sexual assaults, it's, it's almost, uh, there seems to be, for some people, this tendency of, like, well, that's not sexual assault. What I experienced was sexual assault. What you experienced, eh, it's something else. It's not as important. And we put ourselves on this sort of, like, a grading scale of this ladder of, of some kind of, you know, what pain should be treated with some dignity and respect and what pains, usually other people's pain, that should be just dismissed out of hand because it's not quite as horrendous as what maybe we experience ourselves. Right. And to me, it's just, it's kind of self-defeating, right? Because, you know, what's the point of talking about solidarity if somehow you when, when people say solidarity, they mean oh, you have to have the exact same experience as I have to the exact same degree as I have to, to be held in regard to receive empathy. Right, definitely. And I think that's part of why I like writing poetry so, and going to open mic so much is there's just this understood respect at these events that I don't necessarily see just out in the world in general where no one's going to interrupt me while I'm on stage and you're going to listen to what I have to say for the next one, three, five minutes, however long I have. And you're not going to interrupt me. And if you do, like one of the organizers will gladly tell you to shut your mouth. And that's really great to see other people making sure that people respect the space and respect the person talking. Yeah, yeah. I think I think definitely there are many open mics that absolutely is incredibly welcoming and offer that safe space for people and also, you know, are considerate enough to say, you know, if this is a subject that's either triggering or you don't agree with, you have the option of stepping out and feel bad about it. Um, and I, I think it's very important for organizers to be aware of that and it's wonderful when you when we do meet organizers who are that considered uh, yeah absolutely yeah i really appreciate the time to talk with you about this poem and and just the subject in general and learning a little bit more about you as a person before i let you go i would love for you to tell us a little bit about you know whether or not you have any favor online virtual poetry events that you recommend and how people might follow you yeah so you can follow me on instagram nicole tracy right um i made it very easy to find me mm-hmm. and as far as events go i would not be the writer i am today without Bay poets unite uh this official youtube channel uh, they live stream events virtually right now they used to live stream in person Mm-hmm. Uh, their big events are uh, Berkeley Poetry Slam, Oakland Poetry Slam, and Rich Oak Events. Mm-hmm. The group that runs those events are some of the most amazing and supportive and encouraging people I've ever met. Great. And I, I really think everyone should go to them. They host weekly slams or open mics, and they have writing workshops for all their shows as well, which is how I actually wrote my poem. Um, and I actually host 
small group writing workshop where you focus on something that maybe you started in another workshop, but you're like me, you have trouble finishing poems, and you need <laughs> someone to help with that and encourage you to finish it and maybe get feedback. So I host weekly small group workshops. Mm-hmm. Um, those kind of vary a little bit, so if folks are interested in that, they can message me on Instagram, and I'm happy to connect them with what events I'm having that week. Awesome. Do you post the information on Instagram, or is that something that you keep private? I definitely keep that more private just because I have kind of a ton of followers, and I want to prioritize it for writers that I know and trust that have some concept of who they are as writers because sharing your writing is really vulnerable, and I want to make sure that my space is some, as a space where people feel heard and respected and trust that they can go to. Right, right. That makes sense. Cool, cool. Going back to the events that you talked about, your favorite events, uh, can you do they have a website that people can go to or Instagram or whatever social media? They mainly post on Instagram right now. Um, they also have Facebook events up as well. So the Berkeley Poetry Slam and then Oakland Poetry Slam and Rich Oak Alchemy. Rich Oak Alchemy. Okay, okay. Great, great. Thank you again for taking the time to talk with me. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It was great to sit down and talk about my writing more in depth with people. Yeah, it's wonderful. Thanks. Be sure to check out the episode notes so you can see the workshops and open mics that Nicole recommended. As always, you can find us at poetsandmuses.com and on social media via Instagram or Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. Now, in addition to poetsandmuses.com and our SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a safe and healthy week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.